Well, Merry Christmas and welcome back to the Faithfully Entrusted Podcast. I am your host, Brent Snyder, along with uh, my co-host, Travis Tyler. We are in your podcast feed right here on Christmas morning. I am sure that you all are making it a priority to listen to this podcast before you do family dinners or open presents or any of those things. Faithfully entrusted, first priority, (laughs) Christmas morning. Uh, Committed listeners. Travis, Merry Christmas. How are you? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Well, with it being Christmas Day, of course, we are going to have a bit of a Christmas special. We are going to be looking at nothing other than the Christmas story. Makes sense, of course, uh, being Christmas Day. Our goal uh, today is to sort of look at the Christmas narrative in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, sort of comparing and contrasting those two, uh, just giving you a brief overview. And then once we have done that, uh, before we depart from you on this Christmas day, uh, we'll just sort of walk you through an example family devotional that you might think about doing on this Christmas day with your children, of course. There's all sorts of things to distract us around the Christmas season. Uh, Some of those uh, actually very good things, time with family and exchanging gifts and It's really easy to actually lose uh, what this season is all about, especially on the busyness of Christmas Day. And so uh, we just wanted to give you an example of a devotional to help uh, ground and recenter your family on what it is we're doing on this day. And so uh, there's a lot of things that we could talk about uh, in Matthew and Luke concerning the Christmas story. But Travis, why don't we begin with the genealogies? Of course, the genealogies are incredibly significant in showing us the fulfillment of Old Testament. Testament prophecies. And so uh, maybe just give us a little bit of an overview about uh, how Luke and how Matthew both handled genealogies and why they're significant. Sure, sure. So uh, one of the things that sticks out about the two is where they start. So Luke's going to begin, he's going to start with Adam and move forward. But this makes sense with the fulfillment of Mary and Jesus being the son of the woman that's prophesied for in Genesis. But Matthew is going to pick up not at Adam. He's going to start with Abraham, and he's going to move forward. Now, uh, Matthew could probably be called, many theologians call it, the royal lineage genealogy. And let's just be honest, while all Scripture is certainly equally inspired, it's not all inspiring equally, right? You know, when my soul is downtrodden, I don't think about going to First Chronicles chapter three, right? And I think about the Psalms and things <laughs> like that. So, you know, we're tempted, I think, in the Christmas narrative to sort of glaze over the genealogy because as 21st century Americans, we have a real bad habit of saying, well, if it doesn't apply to me directly, then I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And that's a very self-centered approach. So we need to think a little bit more and let me see if I can make this engaging because this genealogy is actually very engaging. So You have what's interesting to start out this genealogy is, as a quick overview, four women are mentioned. And Luke, I think, mentions no women. Is that right? You've been in Luke. There are no women in the genealogy. In the genealogy, that's right. And then what's even further interesting is, is who these four women are, right? I mean, you know, of all the women that are in the line of Christ, there's no Rebecca mentioned, no Leah, none of these many God-fearing women are in the Old Testament leading through the lineage here. He mentions Tamar. That's a bit of a sordid history, right? (laughs) If you have children in the car, perhaps it's best that you turn the podcast down for a minute for the story of Tamar, right? Tamar 
wanted a son. Her husband died, and Judah, her father-in-law, uh, refused to fulfill his family duty at the time, which was to sire a son. So she did what any God-fearing woman would do, dress up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law and had a son and got his signet ring there so that when it all came out that she was pregnant outside the bounds of marriage, they were, had the right to kill her. And she's like, well, the guy that got me pregnant, he owns this ring, which is the equivalency of having his driver's license. So, you know, kind of tells you what kind of a man Judah was too, right? <laughs> uh, you got Rahab, who's running a, you know, she's a prostitute in, in Jericho there. She's got one, a business where she is a prostitute. Uh, Ruth is an outcast of a, of a, uh, of the Israelites, the, uh, and she stays with her mother-in-law. And then you have the, he, she's listed as the wife of Uriah. Of course, it's Bathsheba. And so all four of these women have a key interesting thing, and that is they're either Gentiles or they're married to a Gentile. So mm-hmm. one of the things Matthew's telling us is that in the genealogy at the very first year is that Jesus Christ came to be king, not just of the Jews, but of all the Gentiles as well. Mm-hmm. You move into the next section because there's like three sets of 14 or six sevens, depending on how you break it down. You got David forward, and this is the royal lineage section, right? David is like the high point of Israel's history. And as you look at this list, well, it's rather sordid, right? I mean, Solomon starts out pretty good, but how does he finish, Brent? Well, it's not great. No, no. He lets all kinds of Baal worship, you know, the women. You know, you can almost hear the conversations. I don't understand why we can't worship the God my parents worship. Why can't we have an altar in Jerusalem, too? All right, fine. You know. And so his, um, then he has Rehoboam. And how does that go, Brent? Solomon's son. Also not great. Not well, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, always I think there's, I think there's a pattern developing here. Yes, we're seeing a pattern emerge. Uh, Rehoboam, you know, he's um, he has an opportunity to keep the kingdom together, and he decides to listen to his young friends instead of some of the elders in the community, uh, wiser elders probably, uh, and he splits the kingdom in half. They divulge into civil war, and the south splits off from the north. And the South lasts a little longer, but the North falls quicker. Um, you go from David, then you get down here to uh, Ahaz. And, you know, golly, that's Ahaz is like the bottom of the barrel as far as kings go. I mean, he's, um, who was it? R.G. Lee, the great preacher of yesterday in our denomination. He had that sermon, Payday Sunday. Have you ever heard that sermon? Brent? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where he says, when he's describing Ahaz, he says, Behold, the most vile toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel. You know, he's just <laughs> the worst of the worst. You move over to Manasseh, who starts out bad and ends up pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Amos is a terrible king. Josiah, he's a good king. And then it gets a little muddy in verse 11. Of, of the genealogy. What's interesting here is from Josiah moving forward here, you have two kings that are skipped. And there's a reason they're skipped, kind of like the selection of the women in the first part of the genealogy. It's not always a direct line. Well, who's one of the kings that are skipped in verse 11? Well, one is King Jehoiakim. And he may be worse than Ahaz because Jehoiakim is king when Jeremiah is a prophet. Jeremiah brings the book to God's people on a high holy day, and he takes the book, and as they read it to him, he takes a scribe's knife, and he cuts it, and he burns it. Mm -hmm. 
And then Jeremiah is instructed to write it again, but to add editor's note, King Jehoiakim would have a curse on him forever. His body would be left out. He'd never be allowed to be buried. He would be left to exposure, which is a high uh, disrespectful, um, horrible thing to not bury the dead, to just leave them out for the elements and the animals. And then two, I mean, even in our culture today, uh, even if you're a pagan, I think even pagans see to it that dead bodies are taken care of in a proper way, right? I mean, so it's it's still considered a bad thing to just leave a body dead and exposed. And then in addition to that, none of his children will ever successfully reign on the throne again. Then his son is takes the throne. He is captured by the Babylonians. He lives three months and 10 days in Babylon, and then they are replaced by one of his uncles. And never again does anyone from this lineage sit on the throne of Israel because we go from kings to governors. Mm -hmm. uh, Zerubbabel is just put in and installed as a, as a governor of Israel. He is not a king. And so after Zerubbabel, all the rest of these people in this list, getting us down to Joseph, they're all people who live in a post-Babylonian exile in Israel, which, let's be honest, Brent, it's rather sad in some ways it's kind of depressing because it's like you know you had this great nation with the wealth of solomon you know we start out here with david and solomon in this royal lineage i mean david solomon had there are not there's not anybody alive today i don't think that could match solomon in his wealth nor his wisdom i mean you know you'd have to put what elon musk and steve jobs money and uh, bill gates money together and i don't even know you still would would reach what solomon had and he builds this impressive temple overlaid in gold. That's all ruined by the Babylonians. When they come back, these post-exile believers, they don't have the money Solomon had. Mm. I mean, they build the temple the best they can, and then they muddle through, right? The Persians give way eventually to the Greeks. The Greeks give way to the Romans, and here we are. You know, they, they just become a vassalary state. They lose their status. They lose their money. One thing I will say is that it appeared to cure the idolatry that Jeremiah writes about, mm -hmm. but it's just not the same that it was under the under the golden years, you know. And so they're looking for a restoration. You can see why they're looking for. We want another David, you know. We want another Isaiah's prophesied. There's going to be a day, you know. Jeremiah prophesied there'll be a day where God will live, and and here we are set up, and here we have the line, and Matthew ties it directly to Joseph. So Joseph comes, he's from that line that would be under that curse of Jehoiakim. So this is one of the things that's important about the virgin birth. Brent and I were just discussing before the podcast. Without the virgin birth, Christianity folds in on itself like a lawn chair. I mean, it's just not sustainable because we need the virgin birth for many reasons, but two minimal reasons the genealogy points out is one, to escape the curse of Adam that Luke points us to, right? Because theologians have long argued that the original sin gene from our, our ancient parents is passed through the male. And two, to escape the curse of King Jehoiakim. By being the son of Joseph, he's able to keep the pedigree of the royal mm -hmm. lineage, but he's able to bypass the curse of Jehoiakim. And with the virgin birth, he's able to bypass the curse of the original sin. Yeah, and so these genealogies clearly set the stage for 
this uh, this promised Messiah, the uh, promise that was originally made in Genesis three fifteen, the one who is coming that will crush the head of the serpent. And so, the genealogies are significant. Travis said. Uh, as he was sort of beginning this explanation uh, between the two genealogies, um, that uh, this this uh, these genealogies are not always um, as inspiring as some other passages, but uh, they are very important for establishing the historical and prophetic um, precedent that was to be fulfilled. Uh, at the birth of Jesus. And so uh, we'll take just a moment here and sort of dive in to these uh, two stories as as it just so happens. Uh, I've been preaching through the Christmas story in Luke. Of course, Travis is leading a sermon series all the way through Matthew. I won't be going all the way through Luke's gospel. We're just well, sort I'm just of doing the Christmas through Matthew. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, so I'm stopping at chapter two. So yeah, and so um, as it, as it happens, we've both been sort of leading our congregations uh, through these two, and so um, I'll sort of begin uh, with Luke because uh, Luke does uh, seem to primarily per- focus on uh, Mary's perspective. Of course, he begins with talking about uh, with sharing about Elizabeth, and it, just as a brief overview, it's important to understand. Uh, Dr. Luke is very, very, very concerned with historical accuracy, right? He's he's writing this gospel. Uh, the gospel is actually, uh, in some sense, a personal letter. I think I think Luke knew that it would be, in some ways, more than that. But he's writing to his friend Theophilus, uh, so that Theophilus will know that these things that Luke is writing are verified facts, right? Luke has done the historical research. He's interviewed the eyewitnesses, and Luke wants his reader to know you can have confidence in these things. And so uh, Luke is very concerned with the historical evidence. But there's something interesting, at least it's interesting to me, Travis, about Luke's account, especially considering he's so concerned uh, with the historical detail. And that's actually the attention that Luke gives to worship. Um, there in 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 just the first two chapters, you have these parallel accounts going on, right? You have you have this miraculous birth, if you will, to Baron Elizabeth of John the Baptist. You have this miraculous birth to the Virgin Mary, of course, of Jesus. And so these two things are going side by side, historically significant, no doubt. But you actually have these uh, four songs, if you will, just in the first two chapters. You have the angel's Gloria, uh, which is in chapter one. We have uh, Mary's song, often called the Magnificat. You've got Zacharias Benedictus in chapter one. Uh, you have uh, Simeon, after, it's after the birth of Jesus, but still in chapter two, you have Simeon's song that follows. And something that stands out to me about this, Travis, is if you take out the Magnificat and you take out the Benedictus, and I know that seems like heresy because they're so <laughs> uh, they're so ingrained in, in what we do and how we think about Christmas. But if you take those two things out, you actually don't lose any of the narrative detail, hmm. right? Those hmm. those two those two songs don't add anything to uh, the historical timeline, if hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. And so, as as I was looking at that, it caused me to ask the question: Why would Luke, who is who is so concerned with the historical fact, why would he include these two songs? 
which really don't add anything to the historical narrative. Now, don't hear me say they don't add anything to the story because they do. That's why Luke includes them. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think Luke includes them is even though he's so concerned with the historical detail, he's wanting to show his reader how we should respond to these events. Yeah. And that's with worship, right? He's yeah. wanting to lead Amen. even 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 with all the historical detail that he's so concerned with. Mm. We've got we've got excuse me, the lineage, we've got all of these historical facts, uh, these eyewitness accounts. And all of that, Luke says, listen, don't miss the fact that we should respond to the coming of the Messiah with worship. Amen. The angels worshiped, Mary worshiped, Zechariah worshiped, and Simeon worshiped, and so we should worship. And to me, that's really significant. Uh, for Luke's gospel, but he does approach um, from Mary's position. Uh, he shares with Mary. Uh, there's some there's some really important things I think that stand out about Mary and uh, the way that she interacts with the angel. Uh, where Zechariah had serious doubts about um, about the birth of. John the Baptist and how that was going to be possible. We really don't see that same kind of doubt with Mary, do we? I mean, she she asked the question, how is this possible? But she's not saying, is it possible? Yes. Uh, she's she's asking more of a logistical question, if you will. Hey, I, listen, I believe in God, but I also know that I'm a virgin. So just how is this going to work is what she's asking, right? She's right. not saying, is it possible? She believes that it's possible. She recognizes that with God, anything is possible. But uh, she's asking this question more out of a, a logistical or uh, how how is this going to play out uh, in my life sort of sort of question. And so um, Mary, you know, her faith stands out. Mary, Luke doesn't deify Mary. That's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh we we know that she's highly favored again, not because she has any special deity, uh, but because she's faithful, right? And the way she responds to the angel is evidence of her faith. I mean, in uh, all reality, Mary is an insignificant teenage girl from an insignificant town, mm-hmm. right? Um, but she's faithful. Uh, God knows that she's faithful, and so God, uh, in His providence, uses this highly favored teenage girl uh, to bring about uh, his divine providence and deliver salvation to the nations. And that's really the picture that Luke is wanting to paint of Mary. Well, and she's, you know, sometimes we forget how old Mary really is. You know, we're looking at, this is a 14, 15, maybe Mm -hmm. 16 year old. Yeah. uh, Which, you know, the, the betrothal period that Joseph would have been engaged with her when probably would have taken a year. So, they could have fallen in love and been betrothed as, as young as she would have been as young as 14. Mm-hmm. And that's wild for us to think about. I mean, we don't, you know, where we have like youth departments and all that, we don't think about 14 year olds as adults yeah. able to carry these things. One other thing that I think is, is very important to say about Mary is I think about it. I think it's worth a pause to say something about this is that um, she's sexually pure. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you got a checkered past in this category of sexual sin, you've asked forgiveness, there's grace for you, right? So, but if you're listening to this podcast and you're a teenager, I want to say something to you. Take a page out of Mary's playbook here. Mary was able to be used by God to bring about the Savior of the world because of her sexual purity. 
because mm. she refused to give in to a uh, the carnal desire she had in our time. It's not only carnal desires, but it's coupled with the world's message of find ultimate fulfillment in you know fulfilling your desires. And so, just if you're listening to this, you're not married. God has a plan for marriage, and sex is a good thing, but it's within God's plan. Sort of mm-hmm. like a fire. Fires work great, you know, to heat houses and cook food over. But if you light one in the middle of your living room with no boundaries, that's a problem that's going to yeah. engulf the whole house. And so just understand that you're going to be most effective the the more you can be disciplined in your purity. Would you agree with that, mm-hmm. Brent? I mean, that's. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think that's a good word. And as you were talking about that, you know, I also. We learn a lot in this account about how we respond to God's call, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't dive into it um, in in great detail, but um, you know, when when Zacharias is in the temp is in is in the temple offering uh, incense and praying, right? It's his one the one time in his life as a priest. This is his like this is his time to shine. This is the only time he'll ever be doing this. His prayer is obviously for a child. God comes in, answers his prayer, basically says, listen, I'm going to use you and Elizabeth uh, to bring the forerunner of the Messiah. I mean, this is an amazing call of God upon his life. The response is with doubt and with questioning. And so (laughs) what happens is he ends up coming out mute and deaf. God has just done the most incredible thing in his life. Yeah, and he can't tell anything. About, he can't tell anybody anything about it, right? You know, and you know they hadn't heard from God in what four hundred years at this point, in right? History. I right. mean, it, John it, the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, really. Yeah, he's yeah. in the New Testament, but he's the last Old Testament prophet. Yeah, you've got four hundred years of silence, and all the people are waiting outside, and it's probably taken a while. You know, they're like, okay, well, something's definitely going on in there, and then he cut. He comes out and it turns into basically like the most important game of charades ever played, right? Where he's trying to communicate that <laughs> the most okay, God spoke. The most important game of charades ever <laughs> in the Christmas story. That's right. Um, and so, you know, he's even, we, we learn a valuable lesson that um, God is going to accomplish his purposes um, and how he uses us. Um, depends greatly on our willingness to be used by him you know and then the other side of the story with mary she can talk but really who can she talk to Mm. right because who's gonna believe her right because i mean we're gonna run into with joseph like even as secular as our culture is i mean especially here in the appalachian mountains man it's uh it's kind of a scarlet letter to be teenage and pregnant right yeah. Um, yeah. Even well, now, not as bad as it used to be. No, yeah. t- but that's what I'm going to. That's what I was going to say. You know, multiply that by a thousand in Mary's day. Like even if she tells somebody, nobody's going to believe her. And so that's yeah. part of the reason I think the angel is so intentional about saying, "Hey, you need to go to Elizabeth because mm-hmm. here's someone who understands what happens. Here's somebody." And so um, it's just you know, Zacharias has this huge platform to be able to share what God is doing because of his disbelief. He's unable to share it immediately. Mary has no platform to share how God is using her, at least initially, uh, and yet is faithful. 
right? Even though she doesn't get to be on center stage or whatever, she just has to make this like 60 mile journey or whatever it is to Elizabeth where they come together and they worship together and the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And, uh, you know, the story goes from there, but a scandalous, you know, a scandalous pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. But, and, uh, you know, the but point you is, know, in the, in Matthew's genealogy, you've got two scandalous pregnancies mm-hmm. listed, you know, yeah. you got Tamar and you got Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. That's pretty scandalous how those pregnancies yeah. happen, you know, and God used them. Go ahead though. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, the point is God, God can use anyone. He uses a priest mm-hmm. and he uses a virgin 14 year old teenager from a nondescript part of the world. And, um, the way we respond to him being willing to use us is uh, is very significant in in our lives, and so I think that can be learned from Luke as well. Quite a dilemma, hmm. quite a dilemma, and a lot of good truth there. All right, uh, real quick on Joseph here. Joseph's dilemma. So one of the one of the things that's interesting to me as we compare and contrast how this birth goes with them. Mary gets a heads up before it happens, almost like permission in Luke from the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Not Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph just has to deal with the pregnancy. You know, he doesn't get a heads up. He doesn't get a visitation from the angel beforehand. I mean, he eventually gets one in a dream, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have any of that happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you put yourself in his shoes. You're engaged. You know, we don't have betrothal. It's a bit more legally binding than our engagements, right? Engagements, if you want to end it, you either ask for the ring back or if you're a woman, you give the ring back. And that's pretty Mm -hmm. much it. Uh, You know, our culture likes to do things backwards. We like to move in with people and then get married. Biblically, that's not in your best interest, nor is it statistically in your best interest, because most marriages where people move in, they fail. And, uh, you know, and then they get, it's like when they get married, the, the carrot that's dangled out that will eventually get married is taken away. And so then they just, they fold. But, um, anyway, um, what would you do? You know, your wife, you, you not heard from the Lord. You're, you're faithful. The Bible tells us he's righteous, but you're, you're, you're betrothed your engagement. There is, uh, it is definitely, um, an issue with, uh, you know, you, you're, you're thinking, well, who is he? Mm. You know, who have you been? Is it the guy that I bought hammers from down at the market? You know, I saw how you talked to him the other day. Is that, is it that guy? You know, cause every, and you know, Joseph had two options. He could have kind of made a big public spectacle of it and divorced her publicly. And the other option was to quietly do it with a couple, three people legally. And then, you know, to prevent the most shame falling mm-hmm. on Mary. And he kind of makes up his mind that that's what he's going to do. I mean, have you imagined? Could you imagine what he could have said to Mary? Mm-hmm. But then he didn't, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and at least the Gospels doesn't record it. There's a there's an interesting and an important thing here that should be noted. Just because you think or feel a particular way about something doesn't mean you should voice it all the time. Yeah. We live in a culture where emotions and feelings and thoughts, we think that because we have them in perhaps a fleeting moment, that it needs to be heard by as many people as possible with social media and everything like that. And Joseph reminds us that sometimes it's better to be just to quietly do the right thing. Travis, that's such a good point. I, I say this to my congregation all the time, so I'll say it here. Our emotions are pathological liars. 
Yeah. Right. And um, we can all imagine the emotions that Joseph might have felt, um, the negative emotions that he might have felt in this moment. But Gosh. all of those, oh yeah, all, all of those emotions would have just been lies um, about what was really happening, you know, so. Yeah, and then, word. of course, he he gets the he gets the uh, he gets the instruction in a dream. There's a difference between visions and dreams. In visions, people are usually awake. In dreams, people are not. But the, the angel visits him and gives him a command. Actually, in the Greek here, it's on it's the same par. It's on the same par with like a military command. Like the angel gives Joseph a military grade command to go ahead and take her as his wife. Mm-hmm. And the Bible tells us that he does. Verse 25 also tells us, and it should also be noted here too, for all the guys listening. You know, we talked to the girls about sexual purity. For all the guys listening, Joseph gets used by God to be the father of the king, you know, of the king of the universe, the the Messiah, because he stayed pure too, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Bible tells us here, he doesn't know Mary as his wife until after the birth of Jesus. So, you know, even after they're married before the birth of Jesus, you know, he could have whatever had the right to, but he doesn't. You know, this also tells us that the perpetual virginity of Mary is a myth, you know, that the Catholic Church has continued mm-hmm. to. Of course, the Catholic Church has their own set of problems right now, don't they, with what the Pope mm-hmm. came out with this week? Um, which, by the way, on that topic, since you, since I brought it up, <laughs> I was hit with this at the gym. You know, I, I guess the Pope has, like, uh, given his, um, how, how do they say it? his permission for homosexual couples, but doesn't want to grant the blessing of homosexual marriages, I guess, or something like that. It's kind of the weird way it's sort of worded. Uh, Under certain circumstances or something like that, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, He has just gone against all the teaching of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it in that statement. There's a problem the LGBTQ community is going to have in trying to marry Christianity to their view, view right here in the Christmas story, right? And the problem is this, if that union is is so okay and blessed by God, why did the Lord decide to give his only begotten son to a man and a woman to raise? Why? You know, it could have been any sort of alternate defined family that this culture is infatuated with, but God in his divine providence gives Jesus to be raised by a man, a biological man, mm-hmm. and a biological woman. Because that was always God's design. It was always God's design. That was always what's best. And, um, you know, the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative reminds us of, of that. So, um, so yeah, you know, there's not, there's not room in the scriptures for alternate definitions of families. It, it is always meant to be a, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife. And, you know, children need that female presence in their life, that feminine, you know, uh, nurturing, and they need that male presence in their life of, you know, what is it they say? Women will tell children a lesson and men will let them learn it. And, you know, you know what I mean when I say that? So, like, you yeah. know, you need both of those. But uh, there's times, though, that a mother's more needed or a father's more needed. So, you know, that that's a big problem. It's also a problem this week, apparently, in the Methodist Church, which is another denomination that's, I guess, the it, it's so funny to me. It's called the United Methodist Church, but they have 
continually become less and less united over the last 50 years. And now they're at a breaking point. I think in this mm-hmm. week, 7,000 churches are ex- exiting out of the Methodist church because of the LGBTQ issues. Uh, that was apparently the straw that finally broke the camel's back. And so I feel for those brothers because we, we had a fight in the SBC years ago on, uh, hang on just a minute. Sorry. Anyway. Uh, so uh, we had a fight years ago and we, we let the roosters come back to roost on the the word of God and inerrancy and infallibility. So mm-hmm. that, that sort of over, but you know, it's always sort of trying to creep institutional drift, always tries to creep back in. But anyhow, all right, well, that's it for Joseph's dilemma. Any other thoughts, Brent, on Joseph's dilemma? No. Okay. Uh, in our show notes today, we've outlined for you a little devotion you could do with your family this Christmas, right? Uh, for the sake of time, we won't go into great depth with it. Uh, we, you know, I don't, you know, just to talk about family devotions for a minute, Brent, I'm not sure how you do it in your house. I assume it's a little bit like mine. They're not complicated. They're mm-hmm. very simple things. Um, we're looking at a song, a prayer. You you want to give an opportunity. I try to give my kids opportunity to read scripture at home uh, or to, you know, tell me, what do you think the author means and let them, sometimes even let them do some of the teaching if they're familiar with it. And so we just outline, you know, a prayer. We've got setting the stage there, the passages that are key for this, Joseph's dilemma, the birth of Jesus, and then just kind of conclusion. So I think that's it. Yeah. I, I would just add to that, Travis. Now, yeah, I definitely agree with the simplicity of the family devotion. Uh, for our listener, though, uh, understand uh, with mine and Travis's kids, the ages are definitely a little bit different. My oldest is six, and your youngest is how old, Travis? Uh, he is in the sixth grade, so he's going to be he's eleven, almost twelve. Yeah. So, see, Travis's kids are old enough to where he doesn't even remember their ages anymore. Right. That happens. <laughs> but yeah, my oldest is six. But I, I will say this. Um, even simple devotions can provoke difficult questions from your kids. Yes. And Travis, I don't know what your philosophy is on this, um, but anytime, and and Dawson's my oldest, he's obviously the most apt to ask a difficult question. Um, but my philosophy is if the kid ask the difficult, if one of my kids ask a difficult question, I'm never going to brush off that difficult answer. And in some cases, I may even give them an answer, doing as best as I can for them to understand it, but knowing that they won't fully understand it, um, just because I don't, I don't ever think it's good if our kids ask a difficult question to sort of just brush it off or right. change the subject or say, well, this is something you'll understand more later on. I want to go ahead and give them the answer best as I can, mm-hmm. even if I may butcher it or they may just look at me confused and be like, okay, dad, <laughs> you right. know, um, right. because I do believe that the Holy Spirit put that question on their mind. Um, and as little as we may think they understand the answer now, man, that's just a seed. Um, and that's just uh, working the ground for them to one day understand it. So uh, keep devotion simple, but understand that the questions you get may not always be simple questions and don't shy away from answering the difficult questions. Right. I'm with you 100% on that. Agree completely. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us and we hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Join us next week as we dive into resolutions and thinking biblically about resolutions. Should we think about resolutions as Christians? Should we care? Join us next time as we look at that. And we hope you all have a very, very Merry Christmas.